0: Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're focusing on Australia and its relationship with China. That might sound like a rather narrow subject, but keep listening. You'll find that the relationship between China and Australia is actually a subject with global relevance. It says a great deal about how a rising China deals with the outside world, and it casts a sharp light on the dilemmas for democratic countries like Australia That find themselves economically dependent on China. My guest this week is Michael Fullilove. He's head of the Lowy Institute, Australia's leading foreign policy think tank. So what can the rest of the world learn from how Australia manages a more aggressive China? Australia is of course located in the Asia Pacific, but its history has been profoundly shaped by the West, first as part of the British Empire and then as a close ally of the United States. They're home again, these young Australians, home from war. Australian troops fought alongside Americans in two world wars, in Vietnam... And the units attached to it these last 12 months in South Vietnam. ...and in Iraq.
1: Your work here is now done, and it is time to return to your families and loved ones.
0: In recent decades, however, Australia has become a little more Asian. The country, which once had a white Australia policy, is now proudly multicultural and multi-ethnic, and China is now Australia's largest trading partner by a long way. While maintaining their close security relationship with Washington, Australian politicians have also gone out of their way to cultivate Beijing. Here's former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd addressing a group of Chinese students in Mandarin. For decades, this Australian policy of being close to both China and America worked very well. Powered by China's demand for commodities like iron ore, the Australian economy has boomed. And that vital security relationship with the United States was always there in the background. But now things are changing. Donald Trump's America seems less interested in its allies, and China's getting much tougher with Australia. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison recently called for an inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Now it would seem entirely reasonable and sensible that the world would want to have an independent assessment of how this all occurred so we
0: can learn the lessons and prevent it from happening again. China's response to that Australian call for a coronavirus inquiry was fierce. Australia was denounced and abused in the Chinese official media and Beijing has also imposed tariffs on some Australian
1: exports. I've got some breaking news here. Uh, China will introduce the levy on anti-dumping duties of barley imports from Australia. It will do so from May the 19th. They had flagged this as potentially uh, an 80% tariff. We have to confirm exactly how much. This row between Australia and China is now being closely watched
0: all over the world. That's because there are many countries who find themselves in a similar position to Australia. They are very dependent on the Chinese market. But there are also democracies and close allies of the United States, countries like Japan, South Korea, Britain and Canada. So when I got Michael Fullilove on the line from Sydney, I started by asking him if it was fair to say that relations between China and Australia are now at a new low.
1: I think it is. The dilemma for Australia is always how do you balance a relationship with a country that is so different from your own, that is on the one hand your most important economic partner to which you export, you know, 40% of your goods. But on the other hand, is a a superpower of 1.4 billion people run by a Leninist political system that brooks no disagreement or censure. And I think in recent years, we've done a pretty good job of getting on with things with China, even though the differences are so great. But in this case, we've committed the the great sin of calling for an international inquiry into a pandemic that's killed, you know, heading towards 400,000 people and laid waste to the international economy. So it's our time in the naughty corner. And, I mean, how
0: serious are the uh, implications for, um, well, both, both for the Australian economy, narrowly, if China really um, up the pressure, but also for Australia's position in the world, because as you say, there's this delicate balancing act between great economic relations with China, but also your main security relationship is with the United States, and China-US relations themselves are getting much worse.
1: Yes, and we're in this difficult position at the moment where it's difficult to trust either Washington or Beijing. And I don't say that in a glib way, and I don't, I don't mean to equate them, but you do have uh, an administration in Zhongnanhai and the leadership compound in Beijing that's increasingly reckless. And on the other hand, you have an administration centered in the White House around President Trump that's increasingly feckless. And you have a president who doesn't really care about alliances, not really interested in, in international leadership. So it's a very difficult love triangle to balance at the moment. Um, how serious is it for us? I think we'll probably get over the kind of loose attempts at economic coercion at the moment, so what appear to be tariffs on our barley exports as a result of our position on this, but also hints that other things may come to fire. But over the long term, we can see this is going to be a much tougher, more difficult, colder relationship with a country that is absolutely essential, not just to our economy, but is increasingly... The diplomatic powerhouse in our in our part of the world, and if we want to achieve things and and work for Australia's security and prosperity, we need to uh, we need to have a good relationship with Beijing.
0: Is this uh, in a sense a kind of unique period in Australian history? Because I guess if you look back to the founding of the country, Australia has always been in an international environment where another um, Western power, if I can call it that, has has been the dominant power. First, the United Kingdom, uh, you're part of the British Empire, and then after the Second World War, the United States. But if China becomes the dominant power in the Pacific, or even a, a plausible rival to America, that's a, a whole new situation for Australia, isn't it?
1: Yes, and it's one we've been getting used to for some time, because it must have been about a decade ago that China took over as our leading trading partner. And it's a complicated one to balance, but. Let me give you a note of optimism. I think it's in both Australia's and China's interests to work this out. I think it's in our interests, obviously, because we, you know, it's our most important economic relationship, but it's also in China's interests. I mean, don't forget that we supply the iron ore and the coal and the copper and the gas that fuels China's growth. And don't forget also that the world is watching how China treats Australia, I think, I think the world has noted the kind of wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, what appears to be economic coercion. And I think China has a stake in managing a good relationship with a well-regarded country like Australia that's regarded as a reliable, steady ally and, and also one that supplies um, the commodities that it needs for its own economic growth.
0: Yeah. And I mean, was there a pre-existing change in mood in Australia about uh, Australia or growing anxiety? Because in a sense, as you say, the call for an independent inquiry sounds reasonable on the face of it. But Australia got out in front of the rest of the international community in, to me, a slightly unexpected way, given the, the high stakes for Australia.
1: Well, to answer your f- the first part of your question, I think Australians' views of China have been cooling for some time in tandem with the hardening of Chinese policy. And it's important to remember that, that most of the change, I think, has originated in Beijing. We've seen over the presidency of Xi Jinping a very different kind of China, much tougher much more aggressive in the waters around its coasts, but with other countries. And you've seen a change in Australian attitude. For example, last year in the Lowy Institute poll that we run annually, trust in China fell by 20 points in a single year from from 52% of Australians saying they trusted China to 32% of Australians. And that was before all this stuff. So the second part of your question is very interesting. Why did Australia stick its neck out? I think that in a way... The Australian move to get an investigation into the origins of coronavirus was an attempt to throw light on this wicked international public policy problem and also to undermine the sort of propagandistic claims on both sides. I think, I think the Australian government was concerned not only about uh, claims from China, that the US military was somehow responsible for coronavirus, but I think they were also worried about claims from the administration in Washington. That, this, that the virus had come from a, a lab in Wuhan. And so I think the, the Australian view was, look, we've got the bandwidth to deal with this. Many other countries are still 100% focused on dealing with their domestic situation. We have the freedom and the elbow room to look at the broader issues. And in that context, it makes sense to look at the origins of this pandemic and work out what we can do to, to decrease the likelihood of it happening again.
0: Mm. And how much is uh, the pressure that China is applying, creating divisions within Australia itself? Have you seen a kind of unified uh, response across the political spectrum? Or is there a kind of pro-China camp and an anti-China camp and a a real political division?
1: It's scrambled the divisions within Australia. And it's interesting when you talk to ministers and members of parliament They say that, you know, the vast majority of calls coming through to their offices, people taking umbrage at China's overreaction to what most people would say is a reasonable or even unarguable position. So there is still certainly a view among elements of the business community and among some foreign policy strategists uh, that we've done the wrong thing. But what has happened is that public opinion um, which a couple of years ago was much more equivocal about China, is now much more sceptical and that possibly as a result of that both sides of politics at the federal level have sort of formed a unity ticket on this question of the, the inquiry and standing up to Chinese pressure. Mm.
0: And yet, yet there's been, I know, another controversy in, in recent years about what you might call Chinese influence operations within Australia, um, through whether it's funding politicians or influence on the media and so on. How has that played out? I mean, firstly, has it been effective in any way? And secondly, might it even have backfired by, again, creating this idea that China was now beginning to be a threat to Australia's own internal order?
1: Yes, I think that over the last few years, China has overreached and attempts at sort of influence operations in Australia have failed because they've produced a response from the system in the form of foreign influence transparency scheme that requires people to lobbyists to sign up and admit when they're lobbying for foreign uh, powers. It's thrown light on Beijing's domination of Chinese language media in Australia, which used to be a sort of cacophony of different voices, but is now much more pro-Beijing. Um, so it's the classic sort of instance of, of overreach. And you've even seen that, I think, in the last little while, because... Um, you know, the kind of, this is a slightly different issue, but the wolf warrior diplomacy that we've, we've seen in Australia in the last few weeks with consuls generals turning up at ministerial press conferences and with um, ambassadors threatening consumer boycotts. I mean, this is kind of behaviour, of course, that if Australian diplomats carried this out in China, they'd be persona non grata immediately. Um, there's a mini kerfuffle at the moment, because a few years ago, a state in Australia, Victoria, signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Now, you can imagine, Gideon, how the Chinese central government would react if Australia were to go to provincial governments in China or city administrations and try to get them to sign up to foreign policy aims with which the central government disagreed. It it wouldn't be pretty. And so I think there is a bit of a sense in 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 the Australian public view that what's good for the goose is good for the gander.
0: Yeah, Now, you mentioned this Victoria, uh, the state of Victoria, signing up to the Belt and Road Initiative, which I guess is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy initiative. And that's provoked a response, I gather, not just in Australia, but also from Washington with Mike Pompeo the US Secretary of State warning uh, that this will affect US intelligence cooperation or could affect US intelligence cooperation with Australia, which brings us back to a point you made earlier, that uh, the pressure comes from two sides, from Washington. How is this pressure playing out? How's it perceived in Australia, the, the, the way the Trump administration is, is leaning on Australia to take sides?
1: I don't feel we come under a lot of pressure from the United States on the China relationship because... The, the personal relationship between Prime Minister Scott Morrison and, and President Donald Trump is, is, is extremely warm, one of the warmest relationships that Donald Trump has with any world leader, and because there really hasn't been a lot of daylight between Australian and US positions. So at the moment, it's not that we're coming under pressure from the United States. It's more that in a fix, in a real fix, does anyone think that President Trump would take real risks on behalf of an alliance Partner, Does anyone think that if he was, were woken up at 3am, he would be ordering the fleet into the South China Sea because of arrangements to do with half-submerged water features? Does anyone think that President Trump looks at Asia from an alliance-first perspective? He doesn't. We know that the leader of the free world doesn't really believe in the free world. And so I think that puts sort of psychological pressure on Australia because we've always felt the tyranny of distance being so far from the source, our source of security, as you say, first of all, Britain and, and then the United States. And to find that the United States is led by someone who essentially doesn't believe that the US should be the global leader is something that it, Australians find hard to process.
0: Yeah. And what lessons do you think Australia's situation have for the rest of the world? Because I guess one might say Australia and Chinese relations might seem a little bit niche to the rest of the world, but one of the reasons they interest me is it seems to me that Australia has faced this pressure of a, uh, in a way, a a new bipolarity between China and America in a much more acute way than other countries, but maybe it's a foretaste of what my own country, the UK, will be facing, and
1: indeed the whole Western world. In fact, China has, um, you know, difficult bilateral relationships with most of its neighbours and many of its partners around the world. So I don't think we're an outlier. I think we're probably your future. If I were to try to distill a lesson, I think that you have to be very disciplined and I think the Australian debate has got a bit loose and a bit undisciplined because of the role of public opinion that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Everybody has an opinion on China. Every backbencher is out there you know, issuing speeches and statements on China. And I think it's such a difficult relationship that the more you can structure the relationship and make sure that the professionals are left to run it, by which I mean the head of government and the foreign minister and, and so on. That's not to say that public opinion and human rights concerns are not important, but it really is a difficult thing to balance. And to strike that balance and to be clear and consistent on your differences requires a lot of discipline.
0: Okay, last thing then uh, on this. Another reason why it's hard to get the balance right and to keep a disciplined foreign policy is that China itself is changing and seems to be radicalizing, you know, over the long run under Xi Jinping for five or six years, but also in the recent months, perhaps in response to the coronavirus. You're now getting this effective assault on one country, two systems in Hong Kong, increasingly threatening noises to Taiwan, rumours, or not rumours, stories that there are conflicts on the Chinese-Indian border. I know you're not a China specialist, but obviously you follow it closely. What's your sense uh, of what's going on?
1: Well, I don't think you ever lose points in Zhongnanhai for being tough on the barbarians. And under Xi Jinping, that is very much the case. And so, You've seen a gradual hardening of policy. It's not without its opponents internally. And you certainly see in China, you see some former diplomats and some scholars arguing that the wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, so-called at the moment, is antithetical to China's interests. So there is a debate within China, but it's hard to see the trajectory changing anytime soon. So what does that mean for the rest of us, especially at a time when the United States is not the reliable global leader that it once was. I think all of us need to thicken our connections with other like-minded countries. I think all of us need to invest in our own capabilities, whether it's diplomatic capabilities or or indeed military capabilities. All of us have to be willing to try to shape circumstances we all have to find where do we have interests in in common, not as a way of containing China, but as a way of complicating um, China's ambitions and a way of preserving our own freedom of movement. Because certainly, you know, providence favours those who help themselves, and so we can't sort of sit around worrying about it. We've got to get up and, where necessary, pursue initiatives that we think are in our interests and are in the interests of the regional and international order. And I would say. Australia's initiative in pushing an inquiry, it's a small thing in the, in the greater scheme of things, but it's an example of that kind of mindset.
0: Okay, Michael, thank you very much indeed for, um, for joining us from Sydney. Thank you, Gideon. That was Michael Fullilove in Sydney, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash survey You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business, and the workplace. Visit ft.com slash RachmanReviewCovid to sign up for free access for 30 days. There's a link in our show notes. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps.